0: Today, our Decades series continues as we travel all the way back to that magnificent year of 1991, 1991, what a year, what an outstanding year that impacted not just A decade, an era, but but many eras to come. It is the the year of Terminator 2. It is the year of Silence of the Lambs. It is X-Force. It is X-Men. It is Marvel selling as many millions of comics as McDonald's sells Quarter Pounders and French Fries. It was a booming year. It is a year of Nirvana. It is the year of the Chili Peppers. It is Hannibal Lecter. It is the T1000. It is Cable. It is Domino. It is Deadpool. It is Wolverine. It is a year to remember. And we are going through all of it today on Rob's Observations. Hey, everybody. You are listening to another edition of Rob's Observations. I am your host, Rob Leifeld. Rob Liefeld of the comic book world. I write, I draw, I publish, I create, and that's what I've been doing for 37 years. This is the space that we celebrate all of the comic book stuff. And when you say the comic book stuff today, that means whatever comic book show is on Amazon, on Hulu, on Disney+, on HBO Max, in your cinema Cineplex, you know, at your theaters, your movie house, uh, whatever DVD you're buying, some some download it's also the video games you're playing it's what comic book characters are running through fortnite it's the handheld it's the mobile games it's the action figures you get the picture there's so much to talk about i started this podcast uh chronicling my journey with comic books that started when i was seven years old now that will take you all the way back to a scary number 1974 sounds like forever ago, maybe because it was, but my passion is the real deal. And you are listening to our decade series. We are into our decade series. The last, uh, Decade that we examine the one that kicked off this entire series to begin with, is 1986. You don't get a weekend where Stranger Things Season 4 blows everybody away, grabs all the eyeballs, and says that it takes place in March 1986. It has the music, it, it references films, it's just of the time. And at the same time, that same weekend, Top Gun 2 storms the uh, Cineplexes, Top Gun Maverick, and dominates and makes umpteen hundreds of millions of dollars also tethered all the way back to 1986 because that's when the original Top Gun launched and solidified Tom Cruise as a giant mega superstar. And so then we went through also the other movies and music and television that was impacting the culture of the time. Years, there are years in every decade that really kind of provide a reset or they restructure kind of the 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 status quo and introduce a new norm. And today's years uh, are are, are going to really prove and bear that out because uh, I was actually fortunate to be in the business uh, during during this time as this happened and watched as it took place and it and it changed. And, and I was fortunate myself and my peers to be part of it. It's 1991 and really if we go june 1991 to june 1992 that is a year that is 12 months and that's where i'm going to thread the needle here today we're going to call it 1991 because i really believe 91 is the most important part of this entire puzzle and 1991 in the culture is, it, is crazy it is it is so much more than comic books as you're going to see but I'm going to start dancing with the comic books. 1991 is opening as as a, a, a series of crossover events are, are, are wrapping up in the X-Men office. The X-Men office has, res, has, has, has become even more resurgent under its new editor, Bob Harris. So Marvel 1991. I am only... Really tangentially, make just just very very in a distant way, part of this giant crossover called the Extinction Agenda. But uh, I've, I've covered this in, in in various other podcasts, so we won't dwell a lot on it. But the Extinction Agenda was really in an, a a, a storyline that was intended to let the X-Men books, the characters, and the creative team flex, putting all of those characters through kind of the biggest uh, showcase, you know, set pieces. The, 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 the most important stuff ran through that flagship. X-Factor and New Mutants were a part of it. But I was being rewarded myself by taking over the New Mutants as both the writer and the artist. And so I was really focused on getting those books out. And those books would actually hit in 1991. 1990 was wrapping up. The fall of 1990 was the Extinction Agenda, which extended the New Mutants. It extended to X-Factor, And it was a multi-part saga of the X-Men really fighting back against this kind of slave nation that enslaved mutants called Genosha. But again, all of the key set pieces were, you know, the beats were worked out that they would all take place in the flagship, providing that creative team with the big set pieces, the big Wolverine versus Archangel, the Wolverine and Psylocke uh, and Jubilee kind of storming undercover into the city. Being the guy that, did layouts and breakdowns for two of those new mutants issues. They were really running in place. We were just kind of a sideshow to the main course. And the main course was the X-Men I had decided. And I believe wisely. So I go back in time to focus on my debut as fully writing the book, because introducing cable and strife, as I had been assigned, you know, the new mutants, I, I had convinced them they needed some new flavor. And and I brought with me to the book a really different approach you could tell from the very first issue this wasn't the new mutants that you had been reading prior to my arrival it was really emphasis you know big emphasis on action big emphasis on new characters villains uh the new mutants book prior to me for a year they'd been wandering around asgard they'd been they, they had all the characters were dressed about six to seven years kind of uh, past their prime, looking like Madonna in 1983 and 1989, looking like Billy Idol in 1982 and 1989. It was just a dated book. It was is a book done by kind of middle-aged people. I was 21 years old. I was ripe to be the guy that stepped in, and I and I was uh, very, you know, influenced. All the stuff that I loved as a kid: Six Million Dollar Man, The Terminator. Uh, from 1984, when that, that that I was introduced to that, James Cameron himself came to one of the LA comic shows. They did a, a weekly show up in Los Angeles at uh, at one of the hotels up there. So it was a it was a hotel show, a ball what they call a ballroom show. But in the meeting room, James Cameron brought his little um, like three and a half foot uh, exoskeleton of the the Terminator. Kind of exoskeleton itself, and it was a it was a puppet. It was a automatic puppet. It's actually the one that they used in the climax of the film, which they you know used through the magic of puppetry, like Ray Harryhausen was doing, you know, prior on the on the Sinbad and the Jason and the Argos, Argonauts movie, and and the Clash of the Titans. It, it, it utilized that technology with this uh, robot skeleton when it was you know going after Sarah Connor slash Linda Hamilton and the conclusion of the original Terminator. So yes, James Cameron was hand-selling this to an audience of a couple hundred people. He invited us all up to the stage so that we could get a closer look at the robot. And he, you know, via remote control, made it walk and, and turn. And it was it was really fantastic. But, you know, fr- fr- from from seeing Terminator, which to me was an extension of the $6 million man, and if you've listened to the show for a long time, you you've heard me talk about the commentary tracks on the six million dollar man box set where richard anderson who played oscar goldman on both the Bionicle one and the six million dollar man and lee majors both make comments that they believe that the terminator franchise owes a ton to steve austin aka the six million dollar man which was based on a book called cyborg so that you know that's all. The, and, and and you also know that I never missed the six million dollar man. It was my favorite show growing up. A bionic guy, bionic arm. Does it sound familiar? A bionic right eye. Does it sound familiar? These are all kind of the tenants that I brought to cable and then kind of introduced the time travel aspect again, because, you know, where'd this guy come from? And so, so cable and strife had kind of won me my showcase. Actually, there's a Marvel published uh, kind of coffee table book. That even says Leifeld won his showcase, so I'm focused on my showcase. The reason I've spent ten minutes on this is because the New Mutants really kicks into like a- another gear that even Marvel didn't see coming. Now, during this time, this entire time that the Extinction Agenda is going on, uh, the creative team of Chris Claremont and Jim Lee know that they are going to reboot the X-Men and relaunch it in the in in the summer of 1991. What I had been doing the entire year was trying to get them to let me relaunch New Mutants as X Force, and in other more detailed podcasts about X Force, I think I did one on the anniversary of X Force uh, in, in season two. We we had really outlined an aggressive, you know, set of reasons why this would be so much so much more successful if we rebooted the New Mutants and put the X in the title and three separate times the powers that be turned it down finally and and maybe it was our surging sales they decided they would uh you know finally give it the green light so i was informed you know, kind of right before i was start starting to do x-men i'm sorry new mutants 98 that we were given the green light and that we had to act fast because X-Force number one was going to arrive in June and kick off the summer of 1991, you know, as a giant launch for Marvel. This would then be followed in late August by the X-Men launch. And X-Force was really this kind of, it came out of nowhere. Nobody saw it coming. I've detailed to you in many of these podcasts, uh, Especially, I would recommend for you to go back into my library and look up an episode called The L-Boys. The L-Boys. It is a real-time chronicling of one Todd McFarlane as he encounters the new wave of talent that has crashed into the comic book world. And the new wave of talent that has crashed into the comic book world mostly has L-names. Eric Larson, Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld, Ron Lim. We were taking over... Marvel Comics. We were doing tons of books. Eric Larson on Punisher. Jim Lee on on Punisher. Uh, Ron Lim on Cyforce and Captain America, and and later you know Silver Surfer. I mean Ron was extremely prolific, and he's as you'll see the guy that Todd told all of us. Oh, I, I I think it's Lim. If, if if I was a betting man, I, I put my money on Lim. Lim is gonna be the breakout. Ron Lim is the breakout. I mean I mean he can do like two books a month. Two books a month. Bud, that's something. So we had to hear him, you know, tell us that Ron Lim was gonna be the breakout. And I think we just kinda of, kinda of focused on our own thing and doing our, our going our own path because I at no point believed I was gonna cede ground to anybody, much less Ron Lim. I was determined to make my mark and uh being given the platform that I was given. Post the the work that I did for DC Comics, which was a five-issue miniseries called Hawk and Dove, that really kind of rejuvenated that franchise. And as a matter of fact, Dove, I love to tell you this, Dove, the female dove, the one that I helped bring to life that I created, Dawn Granger, is, has been Dove almost ten years more than the original Dove. So the the female dove has become the de facto uh dove in the DC canon. And 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 so that, that that's fun to kind of uh, you know attribute, contribute these things, you know, along, along the way. And, and Minka Kelly brought her to wonderful, spectacular life over three seasons in live action Titans, Alan Richardson being, uh, the more juiced up, the more beefy, uh, Hawk Hank Hall that I had helped really beef up because again, he had more of a daredevil leaf, Matt Murdoch athletic build. And then I came over and said, can I make him big? Can I make him really more brawny? And they said, Sure. And so even when I met Alan Richardson, he was like, yeah, man, I've been looking at your Hawk and Dove books because this is the stuff that I was handed. So that launched me over to Marvel. I became one of the L-Boys, you know, and, and over time, obviously, Eric turned Punisher into Spider-Man and Jim turned Punisher into X-Men. And I turned New Mutants into X-Force. The summer of 1990, June of 1990, had had been when Marvel answered DC's challenge what they had done the year before when the Batman movie came out in 1989, they relaunched, uh, they, they, not relaunched. They actually launched a new book called legends of the dark Knight, And I've just told you guys, it just kicks. It just kicks me. I, I, I it's so funny. They, I believe it was orange, blue, red, and purple, maybe green, but I think it was purple cardstock covers with just a logo on it. There was no artwork, but so retailers, the same cover underneath the cardstock, that was stapled over. So, so like like construction paper. Like if if you were a kid, like the construction paper that you used to pull out and and and, and, and used to make crafts and draw in your in your classroom or in your art, you know, in your art uh, uh, class. The, the 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 same kind of construction paper texture and feel, except now it had a printed like you know logo. Legends of the Dark Knight. Blue, red, purple, maybe yellow. I'm getting you know. It was it was. You uh, know there was a blue. And and uh, and I'm pretty sure there was a yellow, so maybe it's the other colors that I'm I'm suspect on. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter whatsoever. There was four covers. With the card, you know, the card stock basically construction paper, and it sold a lot, and it gave Marvel the idea. Well, what if we did multiple covers? So on Spider-Man, number one, you had four editions, and that proved to sell three million copies. So you know, in the, in the scheme of things, they immediately said, well, we can do this again a year from now. We can do it with Jim. We can do it with X-Men. So I tried to get in on that, that action. I was like, I need to, I need to be part of this. This is all formulating this giant major shift that is 1991. So Marvel kind of takes the gauntlet from 89 to 90 from the Legend of the Dark Knight challenge from DC, does it themselves, gets 3 million cells, break, breaks records. They're going to do it again with Jim. I, you know, wedged my way in there as one of, you know, uh, kind of the biggest achievements of my career was just not giving up. Like I was the, the the, the guy that was just biting that ankle and I was not going to let you shake me. I wasn't going to let you go. It, it broke my way and X-Force was able to start, you know, uh, start, start charging its way into your hands, and we did that by making New Mutants 98, 99, and 100 kind of the first steps of the transformation of X-Force. So it set the table, and by the end of New Mutants 100, you had a brand new team. Cable had his X-Force, but to see them in action and start their adventures anew, you had to pick up X-Force number one. Each issue of X-Force came polybagged with a different card. Five different cards, same cover, same guts, same interior, but a potential different card. Diamond racked them all the same because, uh, they came out the same week. They gave it one lump sum total sale of the five plus million copies, which is why diamond racks X-Force. And I I have it. It's, it's part of history. Um, and they even say, because they came out in the same week, it was marked as their number one seller of the year. X-Men was staggered every week, a different cover. It wasn't all at once. The all at once thing is is what they really pay attention to. But Jim sold seven plus million copies, kissing eight million copies of X-Men, way outperformed myself, uh, Todd McFarlane, and is the undisputed, you know, undisputed champ, reigning champ, going on now, you know, what is it, 91 to 2001 to 2011? I mean, come on. Uh, to, to, to 2021, 2022, I mean, we're, we're looking at 31 years that X-Men has been at the top, and X-Force has been the number two best-selling comic book of all time. Marvel, in their coffee table books, in their history of, DC, uh, of Marvel comics, they denote the same. These are two giant crowning achievements. I've always felt like, again, when I say that X-Force was the cherry on top, was the ice cream was the special kind of side dessert it's because no one saw it coming they all kind of underestimated it which is great and again i i've I've contacted and i've told you guys multiple times you know after hours or in the middle of the afternoon whenever any of us would talk i mean when we'd be working we'd call the other one and just kind of chat it up i would talk to jim i would talk to eric larson and i would talk to todd mcfarland with great regularity i would talk to todd most Eric the second most and probably a couple times a week I would talk to Jim because we were working in the same office so we were sharing all the same details and kind of the same excitement and, 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 and you know and, and sometimes we would keep stuff really close to the chest I didn't I didn't, you know nobody knew about this, the, the, the big switcheroo I had revealing that Strife was a darker clone of cable because I wouldn't tell anyone I didn't want any, anyone to steal it I didn't want anyone to try and get ahead of me it's a very, obviously, very, 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 very competitive business. The uh, When I was casually mentioning to Todd and trying to pick his brain to see where I would sell, where I would land with X-Force, again, and I, I will share with you in the way that it was heard to me, he goes, Bud, Bud, I, I mean, what the F is an X-Force? What is an X-Force? No, 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 nobody ever heard of an X-Force, but they know X-Men, X-Men. X-Men, they know. They know Wolverine, Cyclops, Colossus. They know it. B- big, big, big deal. X-Men's a big deal. X-Force, Bud. I, I, I would, I would count on a mil. I think you're gonna sell one mil, and and Bud. I mean, come on, one mil of X-Force. I would count yourself lucky. I mean, count yourself lucky. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. A mil. I think. I think a mil. You should. Feel good about a mil. I was like, there's no way I'm only selling a million copies of this thing. Like, I mean, I don't know if I'm an outsold Spider-Man, but what? You know, come on. So it was a pleasant surprise when five million copies came through. Now think about it. Five million copies in June, and then eight million copies in August of just two books. So Marvel, you know, got 14 million, 13 million, 13 million copies. Between X-Force number one and X-Men number one. I mean, they made the year on those two books, and they are doing all I mean, they're still doing Thor, the Avengers, all the Spider-Man books, you know, the Avengers books, the Fantasy Four, they're 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 I mean, doing Namor, the Gardens of the Galaxy, Darkhawk. I mean, all this stuff's coming out. So the fact that X-Force launched at five and then X-Men at eight. And then in the middle, you know, you've got me and Todd teaming up to do Sabotage, the uh, X-Force Spider-Man crossover. And and, and, and like I've told you guys, the second issue of X-Force, you know, sold a million three. That's what five million of your first issue gets you in like the second month drop-off. So why am I hitting these numbers so hard? Because it was impactful. It really impacted retailers who were selling these things like crazy. Do not buy into this notion that X-Force was stinking up anybody's shelves. X-Force sold out to the point where they went back to press. There's a gold version of X-Force. There is a gold version. It's it's all gold ink. The background, the logo, you've seen it. That is because they ran out of their allotted sales of X-Force. Now, did people hoard them and keep them in the, in the back? Of course they did. They were doing it with single every single book. They did it with Spider-Man. They did it with The Legend of the Dark Knight. Everybody wants to have some for later. Now, I've seen retailers in the last two years crack open those X-Forces, make sure they got those Deadpool cards. The Deadpool card was deemed as the first Deadpool trading card, and with a certain ranking, it was going for 1000 bucks, 800 bucks. So, you know, suddenly, again, the, the box of comics that you kept in the back, or the two boxes, or the three boxes, they're paying the bills, they're paying the mortgage, you know, 30 years later, so again, this is, this is, uh, every book, even today, I see guys pulling some, and putting some aside, especially, if it's a first appearance, they, 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 they're, they're gambling, you know, they are taking a flyer, on the fact that this, first appearance, or this special edition, or this, you know, event, is going to be, crucial down the line, that they can, you know, charge more for, so, the, the, this is kind of the whole dawning of this age. Now, what is the significance of the Todd, Rob, Jim, the L-Boys? It is because we were overnight replacing our heroes. The John Burns, the George Perez's, the Walt Simons, and the Frank Millers. They had gone really strong for 13 years in some in some instances. And, and that's that's really hard to do. I mean, the other day, examining Tom Cruise's career, Did you know that from 2000 to 2006, 2007 is his largest surge, you know, bigger than when he was doing the firm and, uh, the original mission impossible, he goes on this run with mission impossible too, that then turns into, you know, vanilla sky that turns into, uh, that, 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 that that turns into collateral uh that turns into war of the worlds that turns into minority report it, it's just that turns into mission impossible three there is just a seven movie run that tom cruise went on where every one of his movies was opened domestically to hundred million. not opened they made over 100 million dollars back when making 100 million dollars domestically was a big deal 120 here 140 here you know so many movies fell short of that they they didn't make that kind of box office but he just goes on this ridiculous um you know string of of mega hits domestically and each of those movies was doing 3 to 4 million 400 million oh, the last samurai is the other one that's in there that the, the uh, globally they're all doing you know 3 400 million i mean he was a the most bankable star In Hollywood, no voiceovers, no animated roles, no 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 you know not not from the voice of Tom Cruise. He was just on a tear, and then he even appeared in Goldmember and did his live action like takeoff on as he appeared as the movie version of Austin Powers. and And so, I mean, you could technically say he appeared. Tom Cruise is in eight straight movies that made at least a hundred million dollars at the box office these numbers would drastically change and shift as we enter the 2010s because of the advent of the you know IMAX theaters and all of the theaters um, doing reconstruction adding a premium screen You've got now the, the the 4XDs. I mean, these commanded bigger prices. The multiplexes were, 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 were suddenly a thing where it wasn't just a movie house that had five different options. It it had, I mean, we have one here in Orange County in the city of Orange, in fact, called The Block. The Block of Orange, it has 30 screens. It has 30 theaters that you can uh watch a movie in and i mean you go down one aisle and there's 10 on one far end you go all the way down and there's 10 on the other far end there's five in the middle and then there's little nooks and crannies that get you to the other five and suddenly you're you're 30 so so this is a different age and 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 then it became about you know tying up all the screens having the giant opening and again my got my 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 guys from disney and fox they they taught me like even before it was happening, they said this is this is what's coming, is the chokehold on screens, and 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 that's just a sidebar of why the jumps in like how a guy was making, you know, it was so impressive that that a movie would make a 100, 150 million Even as I go through the movies of the summer of nineteen ninety one, you're gonna see, like those movies nowadays would be making three to four hundred million dollars. It, it's it's just a different barometer. But, uh. A guy like a John Byrne, a guy like a Frank Miller, they had that Tom Cruise run, and it lasted almost a decade. It wasn't just seven movies, it was a decade of hits. And we covered in 1986, these top guys were peaking. John Byrne on Superman, George Perez on Wonder Woman, Frank Miller on Batman. Well, you know, these guys had already had tremendous bodies of work behind them, so by the time the late 80s was rolling around, especially the early 90s, these guys were tired. They were tired, and in some instances, some of them were uninspired, and it, it's, it's what happens every single time. If you are an NBA crazy honk, or even if you're an NFL guy, look what's happened in the NFL. In the NFL, you know, it's about Mahomes. Um, now, you know, um, it, 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 it's about all of the new faces uh, that, that are taking over the NFL. And, uh, you know, people go, oh, it's changing the guard, it's changing the guard. And it's, you know, You've got this one insane—I mean, this completely insane—legendary uh, figure like Tom Brady, who is just continuing to stay in the game, R- retires unretires, retires. His body's in tremendous shape. His statistics are off the chart. He's still performing at the highest possible level. But then there's all these new faces. Like I said, you know, Patrick Mahomes has been like the the, the new guy. You know, who's 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 been coming around, and 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 then you know, over over you know, in Seattle you got Russell Wilson who has kind of played out the string. It's 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 what I'm saying. It's the, the tired scenario. So now he's he's going to Denver, maybe to give them a facelift, maybe to get a facelift in return. But there's a lot of young quarterbacks in the NBA. You know, it's about Luka Doncic. It's about, you know, it's about uh 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 you know John Morant. It's it's all these new faces. It's Jason Tatum. You know, it's 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 these new young faces while some of the last you know decades superstars whether it's whether it's Kevin Durant whether it's LeBron James that they're all at home they're all watching I mean that you know they are uh they they are watching this stuff happen and and, in instead of instead of being active in in the playoffs because they went home they either got dealt out of the playoffs early or they didn't make it there at all so it's the new age. It's the new age. And in, and in the 1990s, that's who we were. We were the new age. We were the new guys. We were fresh. We had um, tons of inspiration. We had tons of ideas. We were bringing a fresh new perspective. I, I've mentioned many, many times here, mashing up the kind of manga and anime that we had been really smashing into our brains, whether that is, uh, you know, Fist of North Star, whether that was Berserker, whether that was uh, Pat Labor. Uh, I mean, we, we were uh, Appleseed, we were jamming it all up, especially guys like myself and Eric Larson. We were openly um, courting all of this great manga stuff and we were pouring it into our work. And, and and of course, you know, I became the gear and the pouch guy and the big shoulder pads guy, and that's fine. It was different. It was kind of a new age. It was more kind of a, a different uh, approach to what a what a super warrior, maybe not even a superhero, a super warrior would would you know, adorn themselves in. And let me tell you, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to pivot towards the movies of 1991 because I'm going to tell you where some of that came from and you're going to be like, what, 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 how did you have this in your comics at the same time that that, that 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 these movies are coming out? Well, again, you got to remember, especially these movies I'm going to t- tell you about, they were covered in the press heavily for over a year. And the great thing, even today, I can see something uh, that's in a that's in a, television show, an anime, something in the real world, you know, maybe some real piece of technology or gear. And I can apply it to my comic page and that comic can be out in your hands within two months. It is the fastest turnaround in terms of influence and execution. And let me tell you, the top movies of 1991, and these were super gigantic, gigantic movies, super impactful. Uh, Terminator 2, Judgment Day ruled the roost. Released July 2nd, 1991. It literally shook the rafters. I mean, this this had people going crazy because I was the guy who didn't have the normal job. I had the kind of make my own hours job. I completely embraced the fact that I would get my lawn chair and I would go and I would get in front of the movie theater and I would sit out at noon and wait for the 7 o'clock showing when all my friends got off work and I'd buy the tickets in bulk and everyone would reimburse me when they got there and this is kind of what I did a lot during this period of time I, did, I, I started doing it with Batman the summer of 1989 because I could take my time off of work get my lawn chair and again it's so funny you know nowadays we have reserved seating which I'm not sure why they didn't implement that so so long ago but they didn't and, and, and it was it was back when I don't know if they wanted to see the lines, if they wanted to, you know, get that word of mouth that long lines kinda help perpetuate. Oh my gosh, I gotta see that. Look at all those people waiting in that line. A long line really always inspires more interest and more long lines. And uh in in the summer of of uh nineteen ninety one, Terminator two. So 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 this is James Cameron's big follow-up i already mentioned how he was out you know hand selling going to small shows showing his technology for the first terminator movie for this one was covered by everybody because you know big jim had gone from the original terminator to make the follow-up to alien aliens which i think everybody thought was a massive flex an action movie to ridley scott's horror movie which was the first alien but spectacular nonetheless those space marines their gig I mean, and their their gear, their weaponry. I mean, the army of aliens. I mean, it was really something, really something special, really something to behold. And uh, and 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 and, and uh, then he did he had done the abyss. So so I mean, honestly, the uh, the most incredible part of all of this was uh, you know was was that we got an up close and personal look through all of the different magazines, as I told you, premier magazine, the star log magazines, all the sci-fi magazines that were still, that, still out there. They were covering terminator Two, the, 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 you know, set photos that had been shot the year before. I mean, there was really a culture on the publishing side that was following sci-fi and big blockbuster filmmaking. Um, in a way that hadn't existed prior, so we got a lot of visuals. We got an early trailer. We got to look at this stuff. So I've already got a character that's really Terminator-esque, and now I'm seeing like all of the different still photography, and I'm like, "This is." I'm going to lean all the way into this and utilize this stuff for cable and how I'm depicting him even further, more than I already did from from you know issue issue eighty seven on, and. So, Cameron's fingertips, his fingerprints, his influence is all over what I'm doing on X Force. Just based on the trailers and all the still photography and all the stuff that I have followed as a fan of this movie coming out. And again, you got to understand, you know, X Force hits like a month, three weeks before terminator two hits and again the t1000 if we can get all the way into that that was the new kind of next level punch through of special effects that liquid metal ooze that the entire visual representation of the t1000 uh was just just blew everyone's minds collectively you know where you were you remember you know oohing and awing and just being amazing just amazed at robert patrick's portrayal of this character and the all the different applications that they did with that kind of mercury-esque uh liquid metal how it would solidify become blades guns uh oh my gosh just just fantastic all the way through and so that movie was hitting and that application of that technology the look of the 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 direction i mean i'm going to tell you right now what happened it had been happening with aliens it had been happening with the abyss and then with T2, I still tell my colorist, the guys who color my work, look, I need to have a, you know, James Cameron blue lighting, blue rim lighting on this. And everyone immediately knows what you mean. They immediately pick up on it. And some of them who don't, like I kept telling a colorist a year ago, you got to give me this lighting. And he kept giving me brown. Instead, he wanted this, this scene to be shot brown. And I said, dude, you are not understanding. I need the James Cameron blue lighting from Terminator 2. That's exactly how I'm seeing this. And you know what? The guy didn't listen to me. I removed him, and I and I brought in a new colorist who gave me the James Cameron blue lighting. I mean, it's like it's a very specific thing, and all of us in the arts know about it. And when I say the arts, I don't mean just the comic book arts. I mean the cinematic arts, the the film arts, the television arts, the moving picture arts. I mean, we, we, everybody knows what that specifically looks like. When Brian Singer delivered the very first X Men film in the summer of two thousand, there were James. Cameron. Cameron-esque shots that I did not know Brian Singer had in him. Certainly not from like apt pupil or usual suspects. I didn't see it coming. But again, it was the go-to. Like this is how things look cool, this cool blue lighting, this certain angle of storytelling. And and it's it's Cameron. And so, so T T two hit cinemaxes massively now do you know what the number two movie of 1991 is well i'm going to tell you because it has a profound impact it has a profound amazing impact on all of my work it was robin hood prince of thieves kevin costner was on a tear post dances with wolves with his friend kevin reynolds directing robin hood prince of thieves what does that have to do with x-force life so for six eight nine months nine months you know starting in november thanksgiving i mean we get it now. We, we we get trailers did we all not just this last weekend see a mission impossible trailer for a movie that is coming out one year from now one year from now now that we're kind of back post-pandemic on a kind of a routine a regular release schedule you know it's not here's the top gun trailer and we're delaying it for two years so that when you look it up on youtube and it says coming in 2020 and you laugh and you go it didn't even get here till 2022 no we're back on that schedule and you are shown extensive footage, enough to really inspire kind of a lot of your imagination of where they're going to go with this story. I mean, you got Tom Cruise looking like freaking Lawrence of Arabia in all those sand uh, depictions. And he's got the big goggles. And there's, and he's I mean, th- there's visual imagery there that could be influencing what you do next if that really turns your crank. Well, in November of 1990, there is a Terminator 2 poster in the Cineplex, and there's also the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves poster. And there's already trailers, and there's already teasers. And I saw very medieval weaponry. Swords, bows, spears, bow staffs, and especially in one hallway, in in, in the AMC that we were going to, they had the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, so he's all in his medieval gear right next to the Terminator 2, and all of the futuristic, you know, looking visuals from from Arnold and the T-1000, Linda Hamilton's buffed up, you know, super female modern warrior and her, all of her guns and her and her gear and her pouches. And I said, I'm going to mash these both up so I can access both of these. I think these are both going to be tremendously successful. Shatterstar was my Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Shatterstar, now, guys like Murat are like, I can't believe he finally said it. He's kind of kept this to himself. Maybe I'd said it in an interview prior to that, but Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, with its medieval swords, spears, shields, was my ying to Terminator 2's yang, and and I put them both in X Force so that you get the super future, future super futuristic tech, and then you got this kind of basic, more medieval uh, tech. You know, laser swords. I mean, laser giant laser cannons, and you know, swords and blades. And, and, and again this is this is how I saw X-force playing out because I got I got the best of both worlds because you know nobody fires a gun in Robin Hood Prince of thieves and really does anybody you know shoot an, a bow and arrow in Terminator no but we love both they're both giant hits they're the number one and number two movie of 1991 and in anticipating that in 1990 I thought I would put those flavors into X-force and I thought that I was onto something combustible and I was it worked. It blew up. It was very successful. And that formula, that flavor would go on to you know, influence a lot of what would come next, including my own work. So I get to kind of talk to you about my architect, the, the, the sense that I had as an architect and putting this all together and piecing this and sewing this up and making kind of this my vision. Because I like um, the, the juxtaposition. And this goes all the way back to Star Wars, where the original Obi-Wan Kenobi wandering out of the desert to save... Luke Skywalker from the Tuscan Raiders slash Sand People looks like he walked out of the Ten Commandments. He looks like Charlton Heston coming down from the mountain with the tablets. The only thing's missing, he doesn't have the tablets, but he looks like a prophet. You could have told me that there that there are footage the the footage that we see in Star Wars of Obi Wan Kenobi that he is a biblical prophet that he is Isaiah Jeremiah he is uh, you know Moses Elijah Elisha you name it he looks very biblical he looks very uh, you know just just of another time. And then you've got, you know, Han Solo, who's a space cowboy. And so the biblical prophet wanders into the space saloon, cantina, and hires the space cowboy to take them in, in his, you know, futuristic-looking spaceship. And, of course, then they're going to battle this futuristic robot kind of samurai in black armor. All this stuff, I've talked about it before, even as a kid, as a kid see a preacher's kid, I'm like, this looks very biblical, and this looks very medieval, and this looks very sci-fi. I mean, you got medieval kind of samurai knights, futuristic samurai knights. You've got biblical prophets, and you've got space cowboys. And so I saw the power of the mashup. And my mashup was coming courtesy Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Okay, I mashed them together, and it really, really worked out. The fans really responded. In the meantime, while Jim and I are cranking on the X books, Eric Larson is the perfect compliment to Todd McFarlane leading all the way up to when Todd retires, they give the major objective list, just Spider-Man book that Todd relaunched a year earlier or not relaunched launched period. They give that to Eric and then they move Mark Bagley into the spot that Eric left behind. And so what's going on in the Spider-Man office is it's really playing the almost the same strengths as the X-Men is. And if you're listening to that and you were a kid at the time, you know what I'm talking about. Those were the books that were rocking and socking. And and what was happening is DC is getting left behind because for all of DC's uh, best intentions, the Titans is sagging. The Justice League is sagging. They aren't the potent 80s franchises that they were. Titans peaked in like 82, 83. The new Justice League peaked in like 87, 88. And so now those are tired out. Those are played out. Batman is not really... Uh, a, a giant uh, it, it, Batman is not really a giant kind of potent sales force for them. Post Darknet, it's already slowed down again. Uh, again, George is transitioning off of Wonder Woman. John Byrne has already done two and a half years on Superman and come back to Marvel. And the stuff that he came back to Marvel with, we're seeing glimpses of kind of some of the greatest, you know. Imagineering work that he did on West Coast Avengers via the WandaVision show because they, they they took certain sections of that. But by and large, it really wasn't moving the needle. His name wasn't really moving the needle. These guys are kind of playing out the string. George Press signs on to do Infinity Gauntlet with Jim Starlin and leaves two and a half issues in. Doesn't finish it. Who comes to the rescue? An L-boy. An L-boy. Ron Lim is called to the rescue to pick up that incredible... Dynamic that he had established with Jim Starlin on Ron on, on 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 Silver Surfer, and goes right into it and finishes up Infinity Gauntlet, the the, the first launch of this new Infinity kind of themed uh, mini series maxi series crossovers that they're going to be doing, which turns into the Infinity War, the Infinity Crusade, but it all starts with the Infinity War. But George just can't fi- he, he he doesn't finish it for whatever reason. He walks away. Like I told you, these guys are getting tired. The Walt Simon said Fantastic Four wasn't really clicking. And as kind of a challenge that they could turn the Fantastic Four into this potent X-Men style seller. Well, of course they could. They got Art Adams for three issues. They put Spider-Man, Wolverine, Ghost Rider, and the Gray Hulk. They mashed up this incredible other four, what we would call the hottest single characters in the Marvel Universe at the time because Hulk was super hot. Dale Keown was crushing it on the Hulk. And that that version of the Hulk was really exciting. Mark Teixeira, Teixeira maybe just Tex as we call him, was doing Ghost Rider. And the new Gant, Danny Ketch Ghost Rider was catching everybody by storm. Just, just visually stunning, exciting, very kind of action-oriented supernatural theme. And, and then, of course, Wolverine and Spider-Man are always good to go. So Ghost Rider, Hulk, Spider-Man, Wolverine, boom. It's written by Walt, but it's drawn by Art Adams, who's one of the greatest kind of big fan favorites of the last seven, eight years. And uh, and he's doing inspired stuff. Art was up for it. And, and again, the editor of the, of the Fantastic Four, Ralph Macchio, had told Marvel, watch, give me a couple issues. I'll show you how fast I can put this at the top. And he did. It was great. It was amazing. But it was not the Fantastic Four. The Fantastic Four were being held hostage, so you needed Wolverine, Spider-Man, Hulk, and Ghost Rider to team up. And again, you could have swapped out the Hulk and put in Punisher. I mean, Marvel had enough of enough individual pieces of really hot single characters that would have made that pop. But but again, Walt Simonson's Fantastic Four, which was his follow-up from uh, X Factor, which was his follow-up from Thor, it just it just didn't click in the same way because. Again, just like music, and just like I said with with athletes, there's a whole bunch of new sheriffs in town. Trey Young, you know, Giannis. You got you got uh you got all, all manner of new names, and, and the NBA really does look like it's entering a new era. It reminds me of when the Elboys were taking over. But getting back to the movies, 1992 was also the summer of night of, of, of Silence of the Lambs, and in Hannibal Lecter, which was the number three movie of the year, you had this brand new. Uh, imagery, a a new imagery of kind of this sinister, devious mind slash supervillain. And the images of him in his caged helmet would now go on to be repeated in all manner of stuff. Later in the 2000s, that imagery would be prominent in Grant Morrison's um, uh, X-Men on a very mysterious character that had kind of a controversial kind of... uh, Fate, I think his name was Zorn with his X, and uh, maybe I'm off a little, bit, but but that, that 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 metal, you know, mask with the bars on it, and and then the guy at the, in the lonely cell on the other side. I mean, in the in the latest Stranger Things, they do a nod, they do a nod, uh, with Nancy when she goes down and her guise is a fake, you know, uh, she assumes the guise of this, uh, you know, psychiatrist who wants to go and interview. The bad guy. I not If you haven't seen, I won't reveal like who the mystery guy is. It's a great payoff, but it is all borrowed from *Silence of the Lambs*. So I mean, look at this. Thirty-one years later, imagery that was made so popular and did so well at the box office is now being carried across to *Stranger Things*, which is which is you know wanting to scratch that itch and give you a nice, healthy homage, you know. Uh, in comics, they'd say it, 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 they're swiping it, which they are, and they're doing it boldly, unapologetically, and we all dig it. We all come along for the ride, and so so Hannibal Lecter hit like a ton of bricks and impacted everything that followed. The 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 um that kind of the psychotic you know villain as in an advisory role. I mean, I cannot tell you how many times I have seen that exact archetype played out since then. So between you know the medieval success. Of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which is it honestly is really primarily sold on Kevin Costner's star power at the time. It is a jam-packed, star-studded, you know, with Alan Rickman and and uh, and and it had uh, 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 I forget it's not River Phoenix anyway. It's uh, the guy from Heather's, but uh, the, the the thing is really action-packed and uh, Morgan Freeman and uh, obviously Terminator with the future tech. The amazing, I mean, just that entire motorcycle uh, chase scene through the aqueducts of Los Angeles is just, I mean, James Cameron was in super mega flex mode. The visuals, the content, the shooting, the lighting, the storytelling of Terminator 2 was felt immediately across the board by all of us and everyone else who was doing visual arts. And, And again, for me, just seeing the medieval imagery next to the futuristic imagery gave me the template that I knew I was going to carry through on X-Force. Take a winning formula, transform that winning formula into your own winning formula. But, you know, with what's going on in film, with Hannibal Lecter, with Terminator, with Robin Hood, these just kind of transcendental, new, impactful, you know, visuals. Really, they're visuals. They're visuals that are that are, that are, that are attacking our senses, um, and they're influencing guys like myself, and guys like, you know, Jim Lee and Todd and and uh, Eric and everybody and Mark Silvestri and Wills Pertasio. You sit down and talk to Wills Pertasio, he'll tell you, yep, James Cameron, James Cameron, James Cameron, Aliens, Abyss, Terminator, T2. Massive influence on all of us. Well, I've touched on the movies of the day, and how they were impacting the work that we were doing in comics before they even struck. But what's going on again is the L-boys and McFarlane are radically changing, Del Keown as well. As I said, Mark Texier had been around for a long time, but he got a second wind. He he was around in the early '80s, but by 1990 he was reborn. He had kind of been refocused, and Ghost Rider was huge. Marvel was just dominating in a, in, in spectacular fashion, and those multi-million-dollar sellers are not just proving what's possible in regards to sales. They are going to, and I've covered this, line the creator's pockets with some of the biggest payouts that any creator has ever had, and I know because I'm one of them, And which would give us our war chest, which is going to lead us into 1992. But before I do that, and before I continue to kind of seal off this amazing year that is 1991, I have talked often about one of the biggest influences on what happened in 1991 I was leaving to go to Wondercon in the spring of 1991 and I'm grabbing my bag as I would just normally doing I am I've got my r bag I've got my duffel bag for my stuff to go cuz it's a two night trip I'm going to go to catch the flight in Orange County fly to Oakland where they were holding Wondercon where I was a guest and uh I'm just kind of doing my check right at the door okay I've got my jacket I've got my stuff I've got I've, I've packed this I've got my toothpaste just going through my inventory I don't know if you do the same but I get my bags and I kind of talk through my inventory and make sure that everything's there well the TV I didn't turn the TV off so I walked back into the family room of my place and MTV which was always on it was always on it was always kind of keeping me company and when I drew, when I drew again you know whether it was Dave, Fincher directing an Aerosmith video, or Michael Bay doing a Meatloaf video. I mean, there was really great directing in music videos at the time. A lot of these guys launched these giant mega, you know, film careers based on the music videos that they were shooting. I mean, "Janie Got a Gun" by Dave Fincher is a brilliant piece of filmmaking, and and would launch him along with his commercial work into into films. So, I'm going to turn the TV off and it's playing MTV which I'm listening to all the time and I see the beginning of a new video by a band I've never heard of before and visuals I've never seen and I don't, obviously this this website, this this podcast cannot afford the rights to down and out down and down, down, out down, 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 down. and that is the guitar rift that just stopped me right there in my place and then I see the moody lighting and the lights swinging back and forth and this guy in Silhouette, and he's kind of mumbling the words, but then it just kicks in that chorus. And uh, it smells like teen spirit. It's Nirvana. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And I just watched the entire thing, just completely blown away by the kick of this track and the punk rock energy. Because early in my high school career, I was totally into like, you know, Sex Pistols and, 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 uh, and Gen X, which is the band that launched Billy Idol to his kind of like more kind of soft rock rather than punk, but punk, I, I scratched the punk itch. I was in a punk, I especially like the visual representation of how punk rock looked aside from the music and the fast, you know, singing in the, in the really hard kicking guitar riffs and drums. And and this reminded me of that. Nirvana had that kick. It had that kind of punk, but it sounded different. And you know, the rage just just that I connected with immediately uh, the, the, the aggression of the music and it really spoke to me and Nirvana as you know if you are of the time or you've heard wiped out everything it wiped out everything in its past path this was the age the period of glam rock that had really kind of kind of uh, peaked the year before and that's 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 poison okay that's uh that's Motley Crue. And I would say Motley Crew again, they 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 really kicked it off 82, 83. That's when I was most into everything that kind of Motley Crew was going through. But but MTV was in a dedicated I mean I guess you could technically put Bon Jovi in there too, but uh but the 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 band that I hated the most and I was so glad to see just completely shattered um, you know shattered against the rocks uh of, of uh, that, that that nirvana kind of piled up in the quarry to smash all these uh glam rock bands it was it was warrant I hated warrant I hated cherry pie every time that video came on I turn the volume down or I just change it I couldn't stand it I couldn't stand Warrant. I just didn't like their music i, I there's some poison stuff that I like there's some motley stuff motley crew stuff That I loved. But oh I could not stand Warrant. And so the reason I'm bringing that up is. They were the big hit. In the months prior. And in a documentary. On grunge music. Jamie. I think his name's Lane. Lead singer of Warrant. Whatever it is. Lead singer of Warrant. Said he went up. To his record label. And for the last year. When he would get off the elevator. Their giant album cover. Was the first thing he'd seen. It had been blown up. And was kind of the. The, the hanging in the entrance to the label. Well, he said he walked in like he normally does, took the elevator up, opened up, saw Nirvana. And he knew it was over. He's like, crap, we're done. And he was right, they were done. And in the same way that I, I'm telling you that what the wave that the L boys crashed through the comic industry and overtook and just changed and surged with our new, really, we had rage. We had rage, really aggression. Aggression, excitement, jagged lines, lots of rendering. Nirvana, then Soundgarden, then Stone Temple Pilots. I mean, it's just obviously the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Red Hot Chili Peppers had already been doing um, their thing, their brand of very unique kind of rock for for forever because Red Hot Chili Peppers, Blood Sugar Sex Magic is a big. 1991 album too, Nevermind is number one. Chili Peppers is is, is number two, but then (laughs) you got Roxette, you still got your pop. And Roxette really, um, you know, really with their kind of uh, the Swedish pop, kind of leave the door open for Ace of Bass, which is coming like in the next year afterwards, which I know, you know, somewhere between Roxette and ABBA, you get Ace of Bass certainly abba was had, had laid the groundwork for a very long time but you know you've got a uh, you have you, got all, all all sorts of rock and, and and newfangled kind of uh grunge music moving into the space and by 1992, they are alice in chains and 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 soundgarden and 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 pearl jam and and stone temple pilots are are all the rage and it's all the stuff that mtv is playing and the rock I mean, all those glam bands are gone. Even by the time Bon Jovi reboots and comes out with a new uh, album, again, he's cut his hair. They've left the glam rock look behind. They're a little more, I I guess you would say gritty. But in the the world of, of, of music, Kurt Cobain, Nirvana, just shattered. They are the giant wave that comes in and just cleanses. Boom. Wipes out rock and roll, glam rock. Wipes all those guys out and, and climbs the charts and dominates. And again, Nirvana becomes Pearl Jam, becomes Soundgarden, becomes Alice in Chains, becomes Stone Temple Pilots. I mean, it just, it, it, it rolls all the way downhill and they dominate. And that, and they dominate the fashion. My wife uh, had graduated college and took a, took a job up in Los Angeles. We hadn't been married yet, but we were about to get engaged. We were dating and she was living up in Westwood with her friends in an apartment, so you saw all the all the college kids, you know, walking in and out. Everybody had the grunge hair, had the grunge, um, had had the, uh, you know, had the shirts, the striped shirts that looked like they were hang ten from the seventies, and then they had the flannels. And I mean, the 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 grunge music wasn't just music; it was a lifestyle. It was a change in the same way that what we had done in comics wasn't just. A style. It was really a lifestyle of collecting for kids, and and, 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 and the uh, the fans of the time. And again, now our art is going for hundreds of thousands of dollars. That stuff. Again, I've met you. Some of you, you lawyers, you doctors, uh, you stockbrokers. You you've all come up to me and said, "Hey, Liefeld, I've I've made my money in my business." Your, your stuff was my favorite. Jim Lee's, Todd McFarlane, Eric Larson. I'm buying it. I'm buying all of it. I'm buying as much of it as I can. And, and and they outbid each other, and the stuff goes crazy. And the stuff that I used to love, the stuff that I competed for, the Bronze Age stuff, has been kind of set to the side as the 90s stuff has surged. Because those kids have come of age, and they are letting everybody, everybody know about it. T2, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Science and Lamps. Nirvana, Pearl Jam, The Chili Peppers. This was this was a time. It was a time of you know James Cameron on the heels of T2 becomes one of the if not the most important director in the in the film industry and uses all that clout to make a movie called Titanic, which he then uses to make a movie called Avatar, and the rest is history. All this guy does is is do phenomenal visual stunning movies that 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 take audiences on this. Crazy ride. Costner, literally almost from Untouchables to No Way Out through his Triumph on Dance with Wolves and then Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. He is going through that same swell that I talked about Tom Cruise during this period in the 90s. He is just dominating. He is the preeminent box office matinee idol. And and, and Robin Hood with its medieval action, bows, arrows, swords, spears, again, bow staffs, uh, The Merry Men, it was, it was just phenomenal, fantastic. It was the blueprint to so much of what was going to come next. And so 1991, if you go June all the way through the end of the year, you have got a hell of a ride and just the music industry is transformed. The movie business is transformed. And most definitely the comic business isn't just transformed the, 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 the seats at the table and the table itself is, is, is being rearranged for some even more drastic alterations that are right around the corner. So wrapping up the enormous impact of 1991, I decided I would go straight to these books that I was referencing in the last couple of years. Marvel comics has published. Marvel publishing has, uh, Partnered with Titan Books on one publication and I think on two publications, on two of these giant coffee table books. They have partnered with other publishers to bring you these really handsome collections. One is Marvel, The First 80 Years, The True Story of a Pop Culture Phenomenon. This is obviously approved, issued, uh, generated by Marvel Comics. The other is Marvel, 80 for 80 experience 80 iconic images representing the 80 years of marvel i'm going to read to you from these books just how important this era was i mean this is marvel comics themselves so so this isn't rob liefeld giving you his opinion this is again uh showing up with some receipts on this page on page 102 of marvel the first 80 years under the 90s it says a giant step forward it says Underneath that, the headline, is another uh, bold headline that says, Spider-Man, August 1st, 1990, 3 million copies. X-Force, August uh, 1st, 1991, 5 million copies. X-Men, October 1st, 1991, 8 million copies. For Marvel, the 90s rolled in with dizzying numbers. Those absolutely represent the cover dates. Cover dates are different than ship dates. Cover dates are always three months after the actual ship date. So I hate to break this to them, but these dates are June, 1990, June, 1991, and and, and, and August of 1991. Again, the cover dates are what they're talking about. When I say that people were showing up in stores in June, every retailer in America can support that June 1990 was Spider-Man. June 1991 was it was X-Force in August, 1991 was X-Men again. You know, some, sometimes some of these dates again, it's, it's no big crime to be, to, to be, to be using the cover date rather than the ship date, but the ship date is so memorable for everybody. Cause that's when they remember the fans and the customers showing up in droves. It says behind such extraordinary figures, lay a series of unique coincidences. While they certainly had to do with the spirit of the times, there was also a wave of variant covers featuring incredible effects, many of which were interlocking, and fans who worshipped the new worldwide stars, the writers, artists behind the comics, and the spread of comic book stores, and wholesale purchases by speculators. Not every comic was a big hit, of course, but sales were up for series that even had been less fortunate. Spinoffs, limited series. So this is, opening paragraph is kind of mitigating the, uh, Enormous success of a a group of players, but we're going to continue. Uh, Talks about the House of Ideas had begun giving room to fresh young writers and artists with fresh ideas. Todd McFarlane, he had won the hearts of fans with his run on The Amazing Spider-Man, was given carte blanche for his own Spider-Man series. Rob Liefeld, who had done the artwork for The New Mutants with Louise Simonson, was now contributing the stories transforming the team of young heroes into the hard-fighting posse X-Force. Jim Lee, who for a while had been doing the art for the famed Uncanny X-Men with stories by Chris Claremont, would soon beheading the newly born X-Men when ex-Chris stepped down as the main mutant writer since his job. That was his job since 1975. Superheroes got fiercer, more weaponized. Their looks mirrored the styles of the moment. Artists who used bold Bold, vigorous lines replaced people with more classical approaches. So this is talking exactly of all the changes that was going on during this time. And again, it's already, it, it, it starts with the, the sales. It goes on to show more show, show artwork. Uh, there's a, a giant splash page of, uh, that I had done double pager with Wolverine and cable. There is a shot of onslaught. They're kind of just showing how everything changed, how the, uh, the, the flavor of fans had tilted into the hands of this fresh young talent, which is us. It also says in 1996, Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld returned to the Marvel fold when it was decided to launch new series based on the classics: Avengers, Fantastic Four, Captain America, and Iron Man. The Heroes Reborn project gave the creators total artistic freedom. It says uh, Liefeld and Lee were able to redevelop those characters from scratch thus updating their origins to meet modern demands without having to worry about the burden of decades of continuity by utilizing the popular onslaught mega crossover that preceded it that that, that, that wiped out the the continuity that that helped us start fresh and and so again this is in a marvel publication it then covers kind of all the different crossovers and then uh it it definitely in it, it it covers the arrival of cable you've got a giant shot here uh on on a section within the 90s called the young masters it says uh deadpool makes his first appearance the cover of new mutants 98 written drawn by rob Liefeld. it says uh down here that as we mentioned by the time the 80s were drawing to a close comic book, creators were already working their way into fans' hearts. They were mostly artists associated with Marvel's most celebrated superheroes. I'm going to put a little asterisk next to that. Uh, get back to that in a second. And this contributed to their commercial success. After gaining notoriety for his grotesque, innovative style on the Incredible Hulk, Todd McFarlane made his way to the amazing Spider-Man. Under Todd's... Interpretation Spider-Man was capable of incredible moves, pushing the limits of physics physics and anatomy in spectacular, never before attempted shots. The eyes of the mask were larger, more expressive. Even his webbing had changed. It was no longer a set of straight lines, but a thick spaghetti-like substance flowing from his web shooters. This revamped version was so successful Mark McFarlane was put to work on the series entitled Simply Spider-Man, where he would also be involved writing the stories. Something similar happened with the main artists working on The Mutants at the time, Rob Liefeld and Jim Lee. Rob Liefeld transformed The New Mutants. Again, a bottom-selling title when I took over it. I will never not give it the notion it deserves. I, I will not allow that to be removed from the accomplishment. The book was about to be canceled. It was selling an all-time low just at 100000 when every other X-Men book was doing 300000 and above as high as 450000 at the time. He transformed new mutants into X-Force, introducing violent, muscle-bound, sexy characters into the cast. Among them were the the highly successful Mercenary Domino and Cable, a cyborg warrior of the future. A Merc with the Mouse with the Mouth Deadpool made an even bigger splash. Uh, Talks about Jim Lee's X-Men staggering commercial hit. At first with stories by Chris Claremont and then following his departure, Jim Lee... Cranked out the subjects with John Byrne, an old acquaintance of X-Men, bringing on John for the dialogue. Other creators that were hailed by critics and fans in the early 90s included Larson, McFarlane, Silvestri. So there you go. Then it shows a shot of X-Force, the double pager, and it says uh, X-Force number one, cover date, August 1991. Uh, written and drawn by Rob Liefeld. So that is how Marvel Comics will depict that time. My only thing is, I did not use Marvel, popular Marvel characters, and that is a, a a signature achievement, which I believe opens the door to what is coming. Because X-Force, go back to McFarlane, what's an X-Force, Bud, Bud. Okay, that, what, what he is saying there is, no one's heard of those characters before, exactly. So wedged in between Spider-Man and X-Men forever, for 31 years, is a success of X Force, which featured Cable, who was a year old, Deadpool, which is a few months old, Domino, a few months old, Shadowstar, a few months old. The characters of Cannonball and uh, and 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 the rest of the group that I that I that I pulled over were were really uh, boom boom. That they, they, they were they were the faces of a failing comic, and then they were able to benefit by standing next to this new brand new cast, new big 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 word here, new. And you're like Rob, why are you emphasizing this? You're going to see. Because what comes next is entirely new. And most of you know what's coming next. Most of you know what's coming next. Because I said, let's suppose that this year in this decade series that we're calling 1991 is actually from June 1991 to June 1992. There is a massive upheaval that occurs as a result of this. And that is why I believe the new, the new, because look, Wolverine is still popular all these many years later. He was popular, made to be the most popular X-Men by John Byrne, Frank Miller, um, Wolverine, Spider-Man, had long, long instances. So when Marvel writes that sentence that says, well, the characters were also part of the success, I call BS in regards to the success that I had with X-Force and with the New Mutants because those characters had not appeared anywhere prior. Anywhere prior. The interesting thing is, uh, in the 80s, in the <laughs> in the, uh Marvel eighty for eighty. It lists as as its giant success, nineteen ninety two, which is when the X Men blew up, and uh, we we know that this book came out in nineteen ninety one. In nineteen ninety one, they put the Infinity Gauntlet, and I think that's because it's a coffee table book that's being sold to the mass media. They're capitalizing on Endgame, which was in stores. When this uh, when this book was 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 released, and again this is a year by year. My big page, I get the Avengers page on 1996 for Heroes Reborn, but this 1992 page, which is obviously one year off, uh, tackles a uh, the, the 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 success of the X Men. Now it's showing the cover to X Men 11, which did come out in 1992. And be- below that, it's the cover to X Men num- uh, number one, which does say. You know, that it, that it came out in 1991. There's a quote by Jim Lee here. It says, the stuff that I read when I was in high school and that I really love was The X-Men by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. Uh, everyone loved those books. And Daredevil by Frank Miller. Everyone. These are Marvel's top books that Jim's talking about because I was reading them too. And so was Todd and so was Eric. So were all of us. John and Byrne, John Byrne influenced me a great deal. I was also a big Neil Adams fan. I thought his stuff on the X-Men from the late 60s looked great. So you can see that in the 80 for 80, they make knowledge of the success of these books throughout in in the first 80 years, and then 80 for 80 And any Marvel coffee table book that I go grab you is going to mention this. And I mean, they even talked about the formation of Image Comics in that 80 years true story when it mentions the other guys, Mark Silvestri, Will Spottaccio, Eric Larson... 1991 was a giant year. Again, music, new faces, new sounds. Comic books, new faces, new, new sounds, sounds on the page, new designs, new layouts, new characters. And in the movies, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger ruled from on high. Terminator was a technological, cinematic, blockbuster achievement on, on every level. It spoke to every kind of manner with which we as an audience respond. And, uh, and, and, and from The Silence of the Lambs, to Costner's Robin Hood, and specifically, you know, the impact that it had on my own work. Now, what what, what Costner's movie did in, in cinema was reignite a new Three Musketeers. It it, it ignited a new uh, version of King Arthur, several King Arthur movies. People are like, hey, the Medieval Dollar, the Medieval Dollar, boom. So Costner himself was really generating an entire new kind of, I don't want to call it sword and sorcery. Let's call it kind of medieval fantasy. Uh, 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 a new investment in those because they're like, well, we can get a portion of that business even if we don't have Kevin Costner. So so that that is definitely uh, part of his influence moving forward. We know the Terminator it just influenced so much. But 1991, a massive, massive year of huge change. And I believe 1991 could be the most important year in altering everything that we are experiencing in the comic book world right now. And I'll get into that further in our second part when we continue this examination. But think of it, the variant covers, the artists uh, and the artwork driving the field, uh, these new characters, new concepts, new ideas. And 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 come on, without 1991 and these monster sales between X-Men and X-Force, and I've, I've covered in a very uh, in, a important uh, podcast that kicked off this third season called The World Without Image Comics. If you listen to that, you'll see how the financial benefits that we received from selling all those books and getting the royalties on those kind of numbers. We were able to pour back into our own careers, which really what's your appetite for all that we're going to discuss in part two of 1991, which will be coming up in our very next episode. You do not want to miss out on that. We went super long today. I am going to uh, give us a, a wrap and I'll get back to your uh, most excellent reviews that you leave for us. You guys leave the most outstanding reviews for this show on your platform. And I am so excited to always share them with you guys. Continue to share the love, spread the love, your reviews, your five stars. They mean a great deal in in popping us out. I will get back to your reviews for our next segment. I'll go long. I'll add a couple, uh, but you can find me on Twitter at Robert Liefeld. the full name, R O B E R T L I E F E L D. I have a blue check that tells you that's me. You're talking to not an imposter. There are imposter accounts. Accounts beware of those. Same thing on Instagram. I am at Rob Liefeld Blue Check. No BS. That's really me. I read your DMs, your messages, your comments all across on both Instagram and Twitter. I am on Facebook. I have a personal page. I have a fan page. I have a group called Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group. It's moderated by myself. I will probably be the one who clears you and enters you into the group if you were to uh, to to to, um, put a request in to join. We've got a great group of fans sharing comics, stories, art from all periods of my career I'd love to see you over there Um, I am in so many different Facebook groups this page Rob observations with Rob Liefeld has a dedicated fan page on Facebook seek it out like it uh, leave a comment I will find you I will respond you guys thank you so much for spending all this time with me I love just interacting with you guys on social media it's the greatest benefit of being able to talk to people all over the world France England Sweden uh, you know Colorado, which I haven't been to in, in a million years, New Mexico, you name it all across the world. We can chat, we can discuss. So check me out on social media. This is the time of the podcast at the end of every show. I tell you guys to take care of yourself. Please get the mental rest, the emotional rest, the physical rest and, uh, and the spiritual rest that you need and, and, and sharpen yourself with, with, uh, just, just some, uh, so, some, some quiet, you know, enjoyment and and reset because life is a grind. I got I have 3 kids. I you know, I've been married this summer 27 years. I work a full-time job. I know I know what it's like. Uh life has so many pressures. In the last couple of years we have seen obstacles that I have never seen in my entire life. And again, uh, just going from my kids' graduations these last 2 years. I had a college grad. I mean, these last 2 weeks I had a college grad, I had a high school grad. The, the commencement speakers at both you know, both institutions mention, you know, how crazy these last couple of years have been for all the students and for all of us. So you guys, my, my recommendation is eat some good food, some fun food, watch some great movies, read great comics. Come on. That, that is what, what can heal each and every one of us. Please join me for the next episode. Circle back around. You know, I'm going to be here and we are going to talk again real soon. <laughs>